This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Hi, I'm Jeff Gibbard, the world's most handsome social media and content marketing strategist and real-life superhero. And this is my podcast, Shareable. Every week, I get the opportunity to speak with someone brilliant, including entrepreneurs, academics, authors, speakers, researchers, and more. Come along with me as we dig deeply into their unique story of success, including their highest of highs and often their lowest of lows. These episodes are powered by my curiosity about the critical role that relationships and technology play in shaping the course of our lives. These episodes aren't sales pitches. These episodes aren't the standard book tour. These episodes are just shareable. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to let you know about an amazing free resource that you should be taking advantage of. I ran my own agency for seven years, and I know that as a freelancer, entrepreneur, or small business, you want to feel confident that you have all of the skills you need to grow your business, lead your team, and close the sale. But I also know that sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it seems like you can't get ahead. You try to learn how to be a better leader only to find yourself winging it. You know that you have a unique story to tell, but your marketing materials aren't telling it. And the things you need to learn are spread out all over the place, so it can be challenging to know where to even start. And it's for all of these reasons that I created the Superhero Institute. The Superhero Institute is a personal and professional development platform with curated resources, lessons, and strategies to unlock unlimited growth potential and teach you specific superhuman abilities. Your free membership comes with access to the one-of-a-kind superhuman framework, along with a structured approach designed to give freelancers and small businesses the tools for professional growth. Lead your team, tell your story, and close that business. Commit yourself to continual growing, to consistently expanding your skills, and constantly deepening your understanding. It's time that you get more done than you ever have before, and before long, you'll realize that you're just getting started. Become the superhero you were meant to be. Join today for free at SuperheroInstitute.org. Welcome back to Shareable. Today I have Angela Chi on the line with me. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I know this took a lot of coordination on our parts to make this happen, uh, but I'm super excited. And as I told you beforehand, I'm having some technical difficulties over on my side. So hopefully, if at the end of this we need, if there's any edits that are noticeable to the audience, they will forgive us because the conversation will make up for it. Yes, we will figure it out. All right, cool. So let's start here. Uh, you have a ridiculously incredible background of things that you have done that um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself about who you are and what you do. But then I want to fill in a couple gaps that you may not cover in your intro because it's extensive. Oh, you're so sweet, Jeff. You're going to make me talk about myself. Okay. <laughs> I'll just how this works. summarize it. Um, if I were to summarize it non-bio way, um, I'm a media and communication coach and a keynote speaker and a former TV news anchor and reporter. I'm in San Diego now, but I, I started um, my career in small markets and ended up in my hometown of Los Angeles. So if you live in the Southern California area, you may have seen me. And now I'm a mother of two, and I'm really about helping people own their voice and their power and really step out in the world. And I'm super excited for my brand new podcast, The Power of the Only, which literally just launched, well, will launch on March 8th, um, if, depending on when you're listening to this. And uh, it's a new conversation talking about the onlys, and I'm super excited to have it. But the trailer is out now. 
Very cool. Your background, though, is amazing because you have so many different things, a couple of things that you have left out. You have an IMDb, IMDb profile because you've been in a couple of different movies and TV shows, including Blades of Glory and one of my favorite shows that was on TV at the time, Heroes. <laughs> so you've got that. And then yes. you've also got the Zen mom and all the things that you're doing there about kind of like bringing like peace and calmness to the world of motherhood. Um, and like, it, it just, if you search your name on YouTube, which before any of my guests come on, I, I love to do like a real deep dive into yeah. what they've been all about. And you're one of the most interesting ones. Cause it's like, you're in so many different places. You're so prolific. Um, so I want to kind of start with all of that. Um, so you're very comfortable on camera. It's like, it's super obvious and it, I'm, I'm very jealous of it. Um, because I've had to work really, really hard at it and I'm sure you're going to say that you did too, but were you always this comfortable in front of the camera? I say it's funny because we're doing an audio only episode of this podcast, but like, were you always this comfortable in front of the camera? No, I mean, it's really interesting. It's like now I'm an on-camera coach and I help people and I don't want people to be like me, right? Everyone says, oh, I want to be like you or I want to be like so-and-so. And that's the whole point is it doesn't always end up that way. Everyone has natural talent. So some people are better on camera than others naturally. Um, but for the most part, it's just about being comfortable and getting out there. But no, when I was little, I'm trying to think there wasn't, uh, let's just go back to the story of how it, what it takes to be a reporter when you're younger. Now with YouTube and Facebook and Facebook live, which just came out a couple years ago, it just seems like we've always had these tools, right? Podcasting, none of this existed in my career when I was working on TV and definitely none of it existed when I was growing up or when I was learning how to be a reporter. So no, I, I was not always this way. I actually grew up pretty shy, you know, no video capabilities. I think the first time I decided to put myself on video, I was in college. Um, I had interned um, at the newspaper, but not at a TV station. And I had graduated and I decided if I'm going to give this TV thing a shot, I better get some experience. And so I worked at a local cable station at night and I called up an agent and they said, <laughs> they said, I go, how do you, one of the biggest agents in town. I didn't even know, right. When you don't know. And I asked, how do I get represented? Because I want to be a TV news anchor and reporter. And they said, you have to send us a, a reel. I'm like, Oh, okay. What is that? And they said, you have to show me video of yourself. Now think back. This is when I'm about 21 years old, a little, go back a little few years. <laughs> And uh, 20 years, actually, uh, more than 20 years, there wasn't cameras available. There was no iPhone, right? So a camera, either you worked at a station and you got video, right? You had to intern at a station and ask someone to tape you. That's how you got your reel. And so, no, I wasn't always that comfortable. I had my brother. This is, a, I don't, no one's heard this story before. I, my brother, who's eight years younger than me, I said, hey, can you tape me? I borrowed my, um, my uncle's video camera, one of those like high, I don't know, like those home video cameras and mm -hmm. had him tape me in the backyard hosting something. And I said, Hey, record me. And then I sent that to the agent. Can you believe that quality of that? It was probably not great. That agent uh, represented um, a lot of the famous people you see on TV. And he ended up being my agent probably uh, seven years after that. I but in the beginning, it was not, I was not that good. So I, I just had to start and just practice. So a couple of things I like about that one, I love the humble beginning, like you in your backyard with your brother, like doing the videotaping because so many people now that like, so I, I advise a lot of people on like how they should appear on video and like that they should be doing video content and all this different stuff. And they all get so nervous. They're like, well, what if my first video sucks, this and that. And I like to show 
um, you know, a lot of people I know who do a lot of really great stuff on video, they have their original videos still up. And I like to show people those first videos because I think those are really inspiring to see that like someone can come as, as, as far as you have at being on camera and being comfortable on camera and having like these gazillion different um, outlets that you've been on camera. And like your very first one is like you're in the and you, you might have been incredible at it then. But the idea is like still it was in your backyard. And it was like your little brother on a, a high eight camera recording that I think it's like, it's important for people to get that like you all everyone has to start somewhere. And then it's just about how much work you put into it to get to like, where you're going. Definitely. And I do want to point out, though, I, I did forget um, in high school, though, there was, I forgot, there was a video news segment, but it wasn't advanced like it is today. I mean, my goodness, I got, went to tour my son's middle school and, you know, different schools and they have all this video equipment that they're doing so advanced stuff that I was doing, you know, when I was working on professional broadcasting. But when I was younger, it was literally a bunch of guys running around. We did like the video notes or something. And I do remember actually. So I think that if you have a call, you know, even when you're really young, you may see, I forgot all about it, but I, I think I always, I always wanted to be a TV news anchor and reporter. So I did do little video things here and there, but video was just not that available. It wasn't something that you could broadcast. It literally was like home video. And so I didn't do it often, but after college, um, I was like, oh, I really need to give this a shot. And I started interning at local cable stations. So yeah, it can go from your backyard to interning, to getting more professional, uh, video, but these days there's no middleman, and that's the difference, right? Now, um, I still suggest if you want to be a journalist to go to your local market to become a reporter to learn the skills, journalism, ethics, how to write, how to edit, how to shoot, all that. But if you just want to build your brand and be on video and you have something to say, just pop up your iPhone, right? Just start. It's crazy because we have these 4K devices in our pockets now. And it, like, so I, I went to film school. Um, I, I went to film school at uh, Temple University in 1998. And at that yeah. point, 98 to 2003, it was like you were carrying around like zip disks and like jazz drives and stuff. And there was like one computer available and putting out a minute of footage took like three hours of rendering. And it's crazy now like you can edit like a full feature length film on your iPhone. Um, I feel like kids these days, you know, they just don't understand. Kids these days, kids. you know, and I feel totally privileged because I uh, don't know exactly how old you are, but probably closer, you know, uh, but I'm um, sandwiched uh, in this world of where I know what the old days look like. And I'm up to date on all the current technology. So in my career of 20 plus years, I've seen everything. It's like the bridge between, you know, all the people that are saying, kids these days, we used to have a microphone. Like, think about it. When I used to shoot video, my very first at the cable station, I had to have an audio guy follow me and carry this pack. It was, I think it was like high, like an eight track, or not an eight track. It was something close to that where the tape was literally the size of like almost a mini computer. Oh my God. And I mean, it sounds so archaic. I'm not that old. I'm really not that old. Uh, I'm in my forties, but like, Think about that. Like just that time span, I literally was with, when I interviewed someone, I had a mic and then the guy had to follow me with a boom thing. And I was attached to him with the audio pack. Then it evolved to cameras that were like more portable. And then the iPhone thing literally just happened, right? I mean, that didn't happen that long ago. And Facebook Live, like I'm not I think I can remember the day, what was it, like two years ago? Two years ago that Facebook Live went live. Like you couldn't, do live videos from your phone not that long ago yeah it's pretty wild to think about and all of those right? things i think really 
Um, it's interesting because we're talking about kind of like the technology change, but I'm actually, you, you said a word earlier that kind of was like, uh, I don't want to say it's like triggering for me, but it's like a really interesting topic that I feel uh, like I'm super interested to talk about. You, you mentioned journalism and, you know, a lot of people, I think when they get into the idea of being a news reporter or being on camera, it's more about like, they want to be on camera. That's their thing. But journalism is, is a practice and you, and you even mentioned ethics in there. I think when you look at all of the different technologies and how they've impacted news, kind of what's your take on things where they are right now? Because the barrier is completely eliminated. Anybody can create information and, and blog about things and call themselves a journalist when, you know, maybe they not they aren't really. Um, and maybe I'm just naive about what it was like kind of at the early part of your career, what like news was like when you had trusted news anchors. But how much do you, have, do you see things as uh, having changed, kind of being someone who was on the inside of it? Yeah, amazing question. It's something I actually lay awake thinking about really deeply. I um, I don't call myself a journalist now because I do have opinions. And with my blog and my podcast, it's all conversational and, you know, what I stand for. But I live with those journalistic integrity of always seeing all sides. And I think that has helped me. I, I'm a true believer that these days, the number one thing that we need um, what are the words that I call it is media literacy, right? Mm -hmm. Media literacy is going to be the way that we stay focused on what's real in our future, because here's what's happening. I, I stay awake thinking about this. I debate this with my husband. He's like, Angela, go to bed. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> so well, I think it is <laughs> all our response. Cause as this is where I'm coming from as a journalist, you just hit a really sore spot with me because our world right now, if you didn't see the other side, everyone, is being torn in these different directions. You pick the channel that you want to watch and you stay on that. There is no diversity of thought. And if you don't have media literacy, you don't know the difference. And it's almost not your fault, right? Because this is what I do when I read an article. And I know that not everyone does this. I'll go online, you know, you go on Facebook and someone will post something that's like, what? What? How could that happen? I'll look at it, the headline, It'll either piss me off or I'll agree with it because that's what a headline's supposed to do these days mm -hmm. instead of telling you the facts. Then I'll read it and I'll go, oh, okay. That headline did pull out the most salacious points, but it's actually not that bad. And then if it is that bad, I'll look at who wrote this article. Is it the New York Times? Is it a conservative blog? Is it someone on Medium? It's an opinion. Is it some obscure random thing I've never even heard of that was probably perfectly placed to piss me off? <laughs> um, and I actually analyze that. I look at that and then I go, okay, now I'm going to color it if it's a total, and I have certain strong views about certain things, but it's a totally left magazine or a totally right magazine. I factor that into what they wrote and then I form, then I'll go, you know what? Let me go to another site that's the opposite and let me see what they say about that and then I look at it and I go okay I could see how that makes sense too and then I make my own opinion so, right that's a whole lot of research for reading one article and I don't do that with every episode everything but if I get pissed off about it I go wait a second Angela let's see what's actually happening like with the coronavirus and anytime anything that's like huge I'm like okay let me dig a little deeper and see what I can find out then I have an opinion and if someone asks me what do you think about that I go you know what I don't actually know because I've never really read about it so here's what I think surface level but I don't actually know the sides because I haven't even researched it most people don't have the time 
don't even know that that's what they should do. And they just make a judgment call on the headline, which is completely missing the whole point. But they got you to do what they wanted to do, which is you clicked on it. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, I mean, I stay up at night about that stuff too, just it was for like a different reason because I spent the better part of, you know, the last decade, uh, a little bit more than a decade um, working in social media and I, I still touch upon it and work with businesses on it, but I see what that's doing to our culture and how we're kind of moving to the edges because it is about what drives clicks. The engagements favor the, the mm-hmm. outrage and that brings us to things and that brings people to the sites, which they, uh, you know, they monetize eyeballs. So the more sensational, obviously the more eyeballs. So I guess in, in, you know, your process is obviously not one that probably 99.9% of people. <laughs> you can't really do all that. But if you know, though, right, if you know, you won't get as triggered. You go, okay, let me reserve judgment for a second. And let me just think about what the other side may think just for a second. You don't have to do all, I don't do that. I don't re- do that research for every article. I just know that when I do care about a topic and I want to know the truth, I will do that process. But if I don't, then I just kind of color it with like, well, who put that out? Is, is that something I should be trusting? Let's just reserve judgment for a second until I figure out if that's even important for me to click on. Sometimes it's not important to me. It's like, you know what? And if we have that, that feeling, we won't get as triggered. But ethics is super important to me. So even though I'm not calling myself a journalist now because I do have opinions, I still ethically, I, what I put out into the world, I think about it and I see how it affects both sides. But I think it's a skill that all of us should have is um, I think that's what I believe in the onlys for the new podcast I'm doing is the onlys. When you're the only, you've navigated conversations. You've been able to see both sides and you figured something out. And I feel like those people who can discern between um, what's real and what's not and know how to have conversations, uh, even if you don't agree, is what's going to really push us into the future. And like, that's the change that we need right now. So I didn't anticipate we were going to go here, but like, I'm, I just want to keep following this train because <laughs> I know I'm kind of going off ethics and journalism, but it's all no, tied I'm together. I'm super interested in it too, because yeah. it's such a heady topic, but like, you, you know, all the things you're bringing up there, they're just kind of bringing me down all these different paths. So for instance, you know, when we talk about journalism, we're talking about something that's supposed to be as unbiased as possible, presenting the facts and laying it out for people to kind of make their own decisions. Right. But I think in today's day and age, it's very, very difficult to kind of cling on to this idea of either objectivity or unbiased reporting. I guess it could be there, but you'd have to have some sort of journalistic standards there. So if that, if that is sort of a challenge that's there, presenting things unbiased, I'm curious what you think are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out kind of two cases that I think are potential uh, sore points of why this is, why we're having such a hard time getting something that's unbiased and that's not sensationalized and not polarized. Um, and and you, it was triggered by you saying diversity of thought. Um, the majority of these major media channels are owned by a, a, a small number of different entities with their own sort of vested interests of things. So, and on top of that, the owners of these media channels, there's not a tremendous amount of diversity amongst those owners, right? Like it's a, it's a pretty homogenous group. It's not like you have, you know, um, a, a, an immense amount of diversity amongst the, the boards and the, the leaderships of these different media channels. So on the one side, You've got a lack of diversity in terms of who's presenting the news and the information from these big, supposedly trusted channels. And then on the other side, you've got the incentives in this uh, this age of news, like the kind of post-social media age of news, where it's not about you can't really survive off of selling subscriptions or selling uh, ads in your uh, in your newspaper because people are going digital and they're getting news from all over the place and it's coming through Facebook and Twitter. So what, you know, my kind of... Uh, 
uh, I guess, theory of it is that I think there's one, a lack of diversity in terms of ownership. So we're not getting a lot of varied perspectives. And then on the other side, we also have incentives in the wrong place where we're, we're essentially incentivizing news channels to present us with, um, you know, to get eyeballs rather than to present mm-hmm. truth. What are, would you agree with either of those assessments, both those assessments and, or is there something that you think is kind of a more nefarious reason why this stuff is happening? Yeah, well, there's a whole bunch of things that you just touched upon, but yes, you are accurate in some of those aspects. And I also want to make a distinction. So here's the the big picture. You know, I, when I was working in news, you know, I was a small rookie reporter, worked in Palm Springs and Bakersfield, and then ended up in my big break a few years later in Los Angeles, my hometown at KCBS, KCAL. KNBC, the large stations there. And what I saw is as I was working there, so we were KCBS, then we got bought out by an independent, not bought out, but we were merged with an independent because they wanted, so we became KCBS, KCAL. So we basically in the LA news market, I was on at like 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., then the morning show was over, then they'd roll my show for the 11 a.m., like we had a noon on CBS, but they go, why don't you do another one for KCAL? It would be 11 a.m. It was basically we're on like all day long, right? They just kept, and that's what started to happen is that news started to be more, 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 more. And, but I, what I do want to say is there's two different levels. There's local news and then there's the national news. And I think what you're talking about, people need to discern between what's a news show versus a talk show. And I think what happened, that's the first thing, is what I think what happened is um, the talking head shows that you see on Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, some of them are a mix of news and talk. Some of them are just talk, meaning it's a host with an opinion on TV that covers news articles, and they don't, they can say whatever they want, right? If you notice, if you read news articles, even from Fox News, it may be leaning or for other stations, maybe leaning because of the management structure that you said, or not diversity of thought. But for the most part, there are a lot of hardworking journalists, and I am not knocking journalism because there is a difference between, there are still some bright-eyed young people out there that want to be journalists. They work really hard. And the journalists that have been in the industry forever, like my friends and colleagues that have, are still working it every single day, trying their best to navigate this new landscape, their intentions are good. And when, people, when I see people knocking journalists, who wants to, I mean, some people get paid lots of money at the top, 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 like the one host, but most of the journalists, you know, I can tell you when I started, I made like, I don't know, $13 an hour. I think my first anchor job, I made like 25000 a year. And I worked every day from 2 a.m. till like noon, you know, eight hour shift, covered whatever weekend. Or, and that was the was learning my stripes. So all the news people that you've seen, especially TV news people or newspapers, started in small markets. They worked their way up with no money just because they like to tell a story and get out there. They're not trying to pollute and manipulate you. They're just trying to do their job. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there is a difference. So you got to take a look. When people are just so mad at the news, you have to think about what it took. Someone had a calling, like, you know what? I like to tell stories. I want to help people. I want to have a voice. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Journalism was my way because I always wanted to be like Connie Chung. But for me, it was always about helping people uh, own their power and their voice and put their stories out there and speak up for themselves. And that was my avenue when I was then. That's the only avenue I saw was journalism. Now I have a different avenue as a coach and helping other people share their voice. But what's started is some of these people had a call and then they go into journalism, just like people that go into the medical profession. You don't make it through unless you actually want to do it. Because what's the reward really? 
right? And nowadays, what's the reward? You're going to get yelled at? Fake news, fake news. <laughs> like, why does it, I, I, would, I, I still hope that people will still go into journalism, but do it the right way. So you have the journalism group that really just wants to make a difference. They work hard and they try to tell the best story that they can. Every person is different, right? Some people are going to have different ethics, just like different industries are going to have different types of people. I made sure every single day, I have my own opinions, but when I was a news person, I actually dumbed it all down. I took me a long time to find my voice after I left the news, after my first child was born. And when I started the blog, it took me forever to like have an opinion because I was a journalist for so long. And I tried so hard to cut the sound bites in the limited amount of time that I had to make sure that it was fair on both sides. But imagine if you went from one show and two shows in the morning to four shows, to five shows, to six shows, we want more, 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 more to make more, 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 right? And you're like trying to cut these interviews. You're like, okay, let me, let me do the best that I can. So you have the pressure of that, of um, the media wanting more, 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 more. So everything gets diluted and the quality gets diluted. Then you have the second tier, which is um, at the talk shows where, you know, certain um, cable news people, it's cable news. Cable news changed the landscape. It's not the same as a journalist that's going into the trenches trying to find the story. Uh, a talk show host it, at a news station, people think it's news, but a lot of it, it's opinion. And, and because, and then the never, next level that you touched upon is ownership, right? You do have an ownership issue, depending on who owns the station, they could try to control. Just to give you a sense though, I was never controlled. I had freedom. I never felt controlled as a journalist. They may have controlled the type of stories that we covered because we had big news meetings. So let me take you inside a news meeting. Every morning you would have a morning meeting. You would, as a reporter, you would bring stories to the table from newspapers, from your neighbors, from something that you saw. You said, hey, is this interesting? And everyone would talk about it. And they go, okay. And the Simon editor and the news director, not the news director, the, uh, the news manager um, would sit around and say, okay, you do that, you do that, you do that, da, 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 and then we go out and get our stories. So there was some decision-making at the table in the morning that they controlled kind of, no, that's not a good story. So kind of the, I guess, whatever, the open the gates, right? The flood of information. But I had the opportunity to bring my own stories. But when I went out on that story, I had control over that story. They can't tell me how to tell it. Do you know what I'm saying? So I would come back and I would, it would just come out. So it's, there's different windows. You got the owners of the station, if they controlled, like if we all seen, uh, have you seen Bombshell? <laughs> uh, I have not seen Bombshell. <laughs> Bombshell inside Fox News. Now, I didn't work at a national news cable network, which runs differently than a local news station, right? So, but seeing that, you know, there might've, that might've been different. There was control from the top. Obviously working at the big network, there is some control at the top, but when I'm sitting in my uh, news van, getting that story, they can't control what comes out of my mouth. It's up to my own journalistic integrity that I'm doing justice to the story, to honor the people that I interviewed, and that I took the time to understand what was happening. Now, could I have messed up? Could some bias get in there? Well, maybe, but I tried most of my career never to have that bias, and I worked really hard. Could timing be an issue? Because if I was doing six stories instead of one story, allow me to be a little less discerning in the soundbite that I cut. Um, not that I was trying to manipulate the story, but how you cut a soundbite with soundbite, which is their interview, if someone has eight seconds to talk about themselves, right? You, I, I, would, I would edit, and I'd be like, oh, no, if I cut that one, you know, half of that sentence off, 
then it sounds like he's trying to do this, but he's not. Like I would have to use my own personal judgment of how to cut without manipulating the interview. And then I would always cover it saying like, well, he may seem like he's angry at this, but what he's really trying to say is this. And then I would put the sound bite. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, totally. sometimes you don't have time to do that. How you set it up, how you explain the interviews makes a huge difference. So yeah, so everything you said is correct. There's big business at play, but then there's also pressure um, of, at the meeting of like who controls the newsroom at the time at play. There's also individual things at play. And then there's also if the integrity is there and the journalist means well, sometimes it's about the pressure, right? And they don't mean to skew the interview. So I want to give props to all the journalists out there and I want people to, to be more discerning. It goes back to media literacy. Am I watching a cable news show with a talking head with an opinion? Or am I watching a journalist that's really working hard to tell me the story? And am I, are, are they a journalist that's trying to tell the story, but they're at a company that may lean a certain way? And if you know those things, then you can make your own opinion. I, there's so much of your work that I want to talk about, but this is like such an interesting conversation. I can't just leave it yet. I, <laughs> so, I'm, it's so interesting to hear from the inside for me because I, I think a lot about journalism as well because I, I, I think I've mentioned this. I don't know if I mentioned this before on the, um, on the podcast, but um, there's a quote by – it's either – I forget who it is both times. Every time I bring this up, it's either George Orwell or Orson Welles. I always get them confused. <laughs> uh, journalism is asking a question people don't want you to ask. Everything else is public relations. And I think that that's such an interesting oh, yes. idea, right, that like a journalist is supposed to go out and actually dig up dirt and find things that people don't want you to talk about because they're there to like un uncover truth. It's like uh, the whole Washington Post journalism dies in the dark, right? So I'm like super interested in like – especially at this point in time when there's so much of the news that is under attack and there's so much of a, a difficulty discerning what is true and what is not true. Like just even, you know, the idea of truth is under attack and we, we have a hard time, you know, debating that whole thing. You, know, you talked about local news versus national news. I'm sure you've seen the story about like Sinclair and how they are buying up all these locals and how that's like kind of changing the landscape of what gets said there. Um, you, your work in journalism comes from a time that sounds, I mean, again, like, it, it wasn't that long ago that you were in. No, but you, I have to say, though, it is different. It was, I left full-time news about 10 years ago, and I became um, the Zen mom, which is not, I don't do that anymore, but when I had my first two kids, um, I was doing the Zen mom, really helping women own their voice and their power through motherhood, right, mm -hmm. navigating that. And then as the kids got older, I was like, I'm not a mom blogger. <laughs> And I went back to my entrepreneur and I was always speaking and always doing that, but I evolved. Right. And so I started my own company, but the news business has changed. So I'm, this is my experience from working through the 20 plus years of news and seeing the evolution. I can't speak to what it's like in the last, um, inside. I can speak to yeah. it like it's the consumer, but in the last 10 years, there may be more additional pressures that I'm not aware about, but the shift that really did happen. But I still feel like at certain stations, depending on the management, you still have control as a journalist over your story. You know, it, it, it is, but some of the, there could be some other bigger things at play that are happening. Like you said, with stations being bought out, more management control, that could definitely be a factor. But it did not happen for me. I, I had full control over my stories. Unless there was something ethically that needed to be called out, someone would point it out and like, oh, maybe we shouldn't talk about that legally. We should check on that. But for the most part, they trusted me to cover the story the way that I wanted to cover the story. Well, what's interesting is that uh, you brought up the point, like if you have eight seconds and you have like all this footage of someone talking, you have to pick those eight seconds. When I was in film school, we, we talked a lot about documentary. 
And, you know, there's this notion that documentary film is like the objective medium, right? But the director chooses what to leave in and what to cut out. And that always presents a particular narrative. So the decisions you make always kind of shape and change what you're presenting, no matter what it is uh, that you have. And I think one thing that is probably a positive development in the world of journalism is that I think, um, whereas kind of like television news, when that was kind of like one of the, the primary things, and then, you know, you had like paper news, so you had like actual constraints about printing on paper. Um, it was like you had to kind of fit things into smaller spaces, whereas now we're seeing this kind of rebirth of long-form content, you know, these mm. two-hour podcast episodes. You see like, yeah. you know, eight, 10,000-word articles. You know, the New York Times is doing some like unbelievable stuff with this in-depth reporting where they create infographics and interactive stuff. And I think that stuff is really cool. I think one of the challenges you know, I can imagine of being a journalist is deciding what to fit in when you are um, faced with those time constraints. Um, so that's just one thing I just wanted to this, to say, but the, I want to toss it back over to you and ask you about, you know, you got into journalism um, and you left it 10 years ago and you were doing it for 20 years. Um, what was it like being an Asian American woman in the industry then? Because I can imagine now there'd probably be less barriers um, just in terms of, of getting an equal say at the table and being able to kind of present yourself in it. What was it like for you back then? What Maybe I'm making up in my head. Maybe it was like the same as everybody else. You didn't have any bad experiences. But I'm curious what it's like um, to kind of come in and and maybe some of the additional things that you had to go through that maybe some of your colleagues didn't. Yeah. And I, that brings up such a great point of the power of the only. So that's how I came up with the concept. So the power of the only is my new concept because I feel like I've always been an only, right? The only growing up in my neighborhood, an Asian girl. Um, the only when I'm, I'm a woman speaker. So when I go to large conferences, it doesn't bother me that I'm the only woman there uh, headlining or the only Asian woman there. Uh, I don't wear it as a chip on my shoulder. And when I was a news uh, reporter, I always knew that it actually didn't bother me, but you end up in some small towns where you may be the only Asian person speaking up for anything Asian anywhere, like in Bakersfield. It's in California, wonderful community, but a traditionally farm community, very conservative, uh, predominantly white. Um, and I got to bring that to the table. I did the Chinese history of Bakersfield as one of my in-depth stories. Um, and I dug, there was this underground opium den, I guess, under underneath downtown um, Bakersfield back in the old days and uh, these opium dens. And I tore through the, the Chinese history of that. So I never, that's the narrative that I want to create. Yes, there were barriers, but I didn't walk in like, oh my God, I'm an Asian person. This isn't going to work. I came in with the skill sets that I needed and being Asian was one of the pluses. Or if there was already several Asian people there, I knew I wasn't going to get a job. So that was actually the, 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 the downfall of it. But because the people wanted diversity, you know, and I think TV news is a little bit different in the sense that they wanted the look to be different. You know what I'm saying? So they were more open. There are a lot of journalists when we went to Asian American Journalists Association that, you know, you end up in these small towns where maybe the only Asian person there is the journalist on TV. Right. Yeah. So I always saw it as an opportunity to share. I, I didn't bring my Chinese to the table. I'm American. I was born in the U.S. I'm very Chinese at home, Asian culture, but I'm Southern Californian. 
So I brought, if I went to a small market, I didn't move away to other small towns, but say I was in a town in Texas, I would have brought my little bit of Southern California to the table. I'd bring my Chinese to the table. I'd bring my women to the table. And that to me is the power of the only is that yes, we face certain hardships, but to tell you the truth, when I was young, I was a hard worker. I learned everything that I could. I never felt that I couldn't do something because I was an Asian woman. Where did that come from? Like, how did you, how did you have that? Like, is that something that was influenced from your parents? Were you just like a rabble rouser? You're like, nobody's going to hold me down. Like, where did that come from in you? Well, and I'll tell you, it's interesting. Some of the things I talk about in my, in my keynotes about breaking through barriers and cultural stereotypes. I mean, think about this. So go to the backstory. You know, I grew up, uh, my parents were Chinese immigrants in the seventies. Um, they left everything behind, started off in Washington, DC. My parents were in their twenties. Imagine coming to this country. They were successful in Taiwan. They were 20 something, just graduated from college, just engaged. And my dad says, Hey, we're going to move to America. And they're from Taiwan, not communist China. And, uh, they grew up, you know, simple lives, but you know, in a, in a free, free society. And they came up, my mom's like, what? He's like, yeah, we're going to start a new life. And she's like, uh, I have a nice job here. Um, I just graduated. (laughs) So they came here. My dad came first and they had me pretty early. And so he became a waiter. He was college graduate, ASB president, had a bright future, but he needed to make money. So he was a waiter and he just, they just made it work. They made it work the seventies. So I grew up and then we moved to California where, um, I grew up in a suburbs outside of Los Angeles. Very, very simple. They bought their first house. And I remember watching Connie Chung on TV, uh, about eight years old. And my dad said, Hey, you could be like Connie Chung. And I thought, really? Maybe. Okay. So that planted a seed. But then as I got older, So you were asking me if I was always this way. No, I grew up really shy, traditional home. I'm sure I had a calling inside me that always pulled me bigger, but I was, I was shy growing up. I don't think I blossomed until probably about eighth grade, maybe (laughs) ninth grade. And, and then I just always, and if anything, my parents instilled good values in me, but they did not push me. They always told me, you know, traditional Chinese Asian home. Oh, don't be too loud. Oh, don't rock the boat. They were told not, they learned not rock the boat. They just made things work, right? They were immigrants. And so I grew up with that mentality. Somehow, I guess my personality, um, just the calling of it, of always wanting to do more was there. But no, I didn't grow up in an environment where I thought I could do anything. If anything, my parents would tell me like, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's pretty dangerous. So my dad said, yes, you could be like Connie Chung, just because they saw an Asian woman on TV. They're like, great. But then when I told them what I really want to, I want to run for class president or I want to give a speech competition. They're like, oh, are you sure? You know, maybe you shouldn't do that, or oh, you should study more, or or that's dangerous. Oh, you don't want to be a news reporter. You're not going to get married. You're going to be in the cold. Look at Connie Chung. She's not married. <laughs> so, like, she wasn't married at the time. She's married to uh, Maury Povich for years now. But um, back in the day, she was like a success. She was the only woman, you know, on TV, Asian woman, and uh, she, you know, didn't look like a nice life. And they were trying to talk me out of it. So no, I didn't grow up that way. There was something, and I think for listeners out there, if you have that calling inside, I don't think it goes away. But that being said, what I talk about in my keynotes is I didn't realize that I still lived with those internal barriers, even though I pushed through them and became successful and felt like I could do anything I wanted. When I became a reporter, I remember the first time I realized, um, I had a voice coach uh, as I, when I went to LA market, uh, stepping up my game, I went to the celebrity voice coach 
And I walked into his office and, you know, there's all these famous people on the wall. And I was like, oh, okay, I've really made it now. And he said to me, he goes, as we were training, we did a couple of voice lessons, traditional voice stuff. And then he says to me, do you think being Asian, an Asian woman affects your voice? And I said, what are you talking about? I go, I'm, I'm TV. I'm a fill-in anchor. I'm a reporter. I'm only 20, you know, four, five, four years old. I've made it back. What are you talking about? He goes, do you think being an Asian woman affects your voice? I'm like, what? He's crazy. I don't know what he's talking about. What he was taught. And then I just go, huh, does it? And then I started flashing back to my parents telling me not to rock the boat, to play small. And I think many women can relate with this. And I think some men can actually relate with this too. I have a lot of clients who you think only women have these issues, but if you go back to your childhood, is there a moment where someone told you not to rock the boat, to be quiet, to stay small, to not show up? And I go, oh my God, maybe there are subconscious parts of me that keep me small. So on the outside, no, I feel like I can do absolutely anything. If I know that if I, and it's through experience, because once you've done it once, you're like, you know what, that worked out. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And you become more confident and more courageous. But for women especially, and I think some men, as you hit higher levels of where you're going to go in your leadership, you hit plateaus because all that old stuff comes back, right? So a long answer to your question, yes, I absolutely, without a doubt, have done a lot of work on myself. And I know that if I work hard enough and I actually want it, because that's a barrier too. Sometimes you say you want something and you don't actually want it. And so you prevent yourself from getting it. Um, I know that I can achieve that. Now, am I going to have setbacks? Yes. It, it, may I detour because something didn't work out? Yes. But I know I have that feeling inside me because I've worked so hard, every, everything that I've gotten, I know that I can get it. It doesn't mean it always turn out the way I want it. But do I still get moments of doubt? Of course. Do I still have internal barriers that I break through every day? Yes. Do I still have those subconscious voices that creep up? But now I know that they're voices. Whereas I think people who haven't done the work may just stop themselves and they don't even know why. This is doubly interesting for me just because my wife is Chinese, American Chinese. Her parents, oh, okay. Her parents yeah. came over from her mom from Hong Kong, her dad from Taiwan. Uh, they opened a restaurant because, again, needed to make money. Had yes. To, brought the whole family over. She was basically raised by her grandparents mostly. Um, and a lot of those same cultural influences are there, especially like I think sort of the, the work ethic of um, immigrant families is like it's, it's just mind-blowing to me because – I didn't grow up with that kind of a work ethic and, you know, the whole get good grades in school and this, and I can see the difference between my wife and I just in terms of, um, you know, we're, we're expecting our daughter in uh, a couple of months, May 1st is the due date. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. That's Thanks. exciting. So I, I actually was going to, I probably have a handful of questions about like, what's it like to have an Asian daughter and like, what are some things I need to know as a white guy? Oh yeah. We can go to parenting too. Yes. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Well, well, I've evolved out of it there. My kids are 10 and 11 now, the early years, but yeah, I can help you out. With yeah. That. We'll definitely, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that, but um, it's so interesting because um you know, the, the sort of um, those voices on the inside that you're talking about, um, kind of, uh, you know, the voices from your parents, of like, don't rock the boat. Like my, my wife has a lot of those kind of like voices from her family in her head as well. And she's very like vivacious and connects people. And like, she's the most incredible person ever. But uh, I can see that stuff impacting her. And when we talk about our, our forthcoming daughter, like we have two very, very different kind of approaches in like how we're going to um, you know, empower her. Like, so for my, mm -hmm. me thinking about my daughter, I'm like, I want to remove every possible 
maybe not remove every barrier. I want her to be able to smash through any barrier that there is. I want her to know that her voice matters and that she can make a difference. And like, I want this little girl to think that she can be present, you know? Um, so like her doing well in school and like all of that kind of like the work ethic that comes from her side of the family is not going to come from me. Mine's going to be like the entrepreneurialism, nobody stops you, whatever. And then on her side, she's got that. But the, the part of your story that I thought was probably one of the kind of the hidden gems of that was that it was that moment that you saw Connie Chung on TV. That's, that's the representation part that I think people don't give enough credit to that it really yes. matters to see people like you, let's say, on TV. Like, I get the benefit growing up as a white guy that like everywhere I go, every door is open because I'm represented everywhere. Right. And I think when yeah, it's it, all possible for you, yes. all possible, there's nothing I can't do. Right. And, and that has its own drawbacks because then you're like, why, why am I not a billionaire right now? Cause so anyway, but, um, yeah, but there's still a lot of variables, a little bit, you know, if you say about privilege, but it's not just because you're automatically, I know people are hard yeah. on, uh, white guys these days. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just saying that it's more like it, there's nothing systemic about why I don't get what I want. Right. But yeah, it, that does exist for, um, for people that are not just white guys. Right. So yeah. let's talk about representation because it's in your web copy. I want to get a sense of what you think that looks like here in 2020. I mean, is the biggest uh, barrier right now that is uh, kind of leading to more representation? Is it that we have to kind of break the social conditioning that kind of like work with the voice that women and people of color and, and people who don't have the doors wide open to them um, just by way of like the, winning the, the the birth lottery and the society? Um, or is it more about finding ways to create those openings and kind of break that stranglehold of, of those opportunities so that yeah. they're open to more people? Like, is it more, not, it's obviously both, but in terms of your, your looking at it as like the state of representation in 2020, where's the real work that you feel like is, is the harder stuff to work on right now? Yeah. I love that you brought this up, you know, and thank you for reading my website. So my mission really is power, presence, and representation. So yes, I'm a media and communication coach, but this all stems back to my childhood. My parents not having a voice, growing up in an immigrant home, knowing that I could do something, it's all tied together, being a journalist, sharing people's stories. So now my mission is really, you know, there are people who have had the call, whether they're a woman or a man or they're Asian or they're another ethnicity. And I want to bring that alive in people. That is my mission right now is to find the gem and allow people to be inspired or sparked or motivated to get out there and have the tools to get out there. So it's not just the inspiration, but actually using my background to help people tell their stories and have power, presence, and representation because that's how we change the world. Any idea that you have that you think can add to our world, that is what I want to bring alive in people. And yes, in Asian women, but also in you. Like if you had an idea, it's the same thing. The, the barriers that an Asian woman may deal with are slightly different than the ones that you deal with, but it's the same purpose, right? Of representation. Now for you, you were saying, you know, I think, yes, more Asian women should be represented, more uh, people of color should be represented. But if you have an idea, Jeff, you should be represented too. If your diversity of thought is different, if you're creating something that's different, and that is what the power of the only is about. I want to, I'm launching on International Women's Day, but it's not about women. Now, I specialize, of course, Asian women are drawn to me. Women are drawn to me as a coach and as a speaker. 
But this concept applies to everyone, right? The representation, if you have a diversity of thought that's totally different that need, the world needs to know and you're fighting against the grain and you're the only one that has that idea and it may not be the status quo, you need that power of the only two. You know what I'm saying? But I know you're trying to touch upon a different story about what's the next thing for representation. I think all of us that have some sort of message or a tug that you want to say something and you're scared to, you know, depending on the environment, if it's important, but get the tools that you need. And part of those is um, how I help my clients is it's not just external, it's internal as well. So yes, you know, what camera gear do you want? What lighting do you want? How do you stand? How do you sit? How to become a better speaker? How to navigate sound bites? How to be the person that you want? But the inner work is who are you? What do you stand for? What are your barriers? Do barriers come from your childhood? Do they come from your ethnicity? Do you come from someone calling you short when you were little, you know? And what is your message and your story and how do you want to put out put that out into the world. And that's why when people say, well, are you a speech coach? It's like, well, yes, I can help you do your speech, but you amplified what I really believe in. And you talked about representation is all those other things to get to the point where you show up and embody who you are. Right. So just being good on camera or just giving a good speech, that's like, that's like the fifth step. The other steps are, who are you? What do you stand for? How do you want to show up in the world? How do you want to be represented and knowing that it's bigger than yourself? And so so I I think you should keep going with the representation. We all need to show up so that people can be seen and role models for the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's spot on. And, and I would probably add another thing is that we also have to, um, in addition to being able to represent ourselves and to work to create more openings for others, we also have to be very, I think, supportive of one another and kind of be cheerleaders for each other's ideas. Um, and and just I think that's just another aspect of it um, that I don't think we do enough of. One of the things that I try to do um, or that I'm doing right now that is, is that I started a company called the Superhero Institute where yeah, in a lot of exciting. ways similar to what you're doing where um, I want to give people the skills so that they can accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish, whether it's, you know, being a better leader, uh, being more effective in sales or marketing themselves. So I I provide a lot of these tools for people to better understand how they can show up in the best possible way. So I want to get a sense of how you do this sort of work, because it it makes sense to me uh, about how if you empower people, they're going to be able to show up in those in those high pressure, you know, those moments where they have the opportunity. And that's going to lead to better representation for all sorts of people. So yes. you help people find their voice, you help them clarify their message and then package it in a way where they can shine on camera or just in life. So let's talk a little bit about what that approach looks like. What's your general starting point when you uh, are trying to find that only in someone? Um, and it's, it's a really interesting way that you took power of only and you took only from being something that sounds kind of like lonely and um, potentially like daunting and you made it into something empowering. I really appreciate that. That's, that's good. It just occurred to me. Oh, well, thank you. It, it, I really, I'm really trying to gather all the onlys because I know that, you know, one of the lines, not the lines, but one of my taglines and that I thought about really closely is that um, being an only can be lonely at times, but you are not alone. Yeah. All the onlys together. Yeah. Because when you're trying to do something different, when you're trying to say something different, when you're trying to break out of what everyone says, that's just the way it is. You know, you can call it innovation in business. You can call it disruption in businesses. You can call it just standing up for yourself. You know, it feels really lonely. You know, when I was becoming a reporter, I left all my friends behind. It's like I knew I wanted to do this and I had to go do the work and it was lonely. 
but I wasn't alone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, your first step with people, like if you were like, um, if you were to sit down with someone like me, or if you were to sit down with any of your clients, like what are kind of the first feeling it out kind of questions that you deal with? Like what are, how do you kind of approach helping people to figure out what their voice is and what their message is all about? Yeah, we'll see. And this is what's interesting. So people usually come to me. Um, I work with high level executives as well as um, high level entrepreneurs or founders. And so they come when they go, oh my gosh, I have a speech in three weeks, or I'm going to be on TV uh, at the local station, or I'm going to be on the Today Show, or I have to moderate a panel, or I have to be on a panel. What do I do? They come in because of a reason. Or some people just come in because they know they're stepping up to their next level and they're like, I want to embody everything I am. I want to know how to do video. I want to do speaking. I want to do it all. Right. But they come in for a reason, for a skill set. And then what they realize is so I take them through the process. So I go, What are your, we, we talk about what their goals are, overall goals. What do I focus on? I want to be ready to host this panel. I want to ultimately be on the Today Show and I want to do local news. I get a big sense of their goals. And depending on that goal, um, we do a vision questionnaire. It's like, where are you now and where do you want to be? And one of the first things we do is we have a full questionnaire. So I get a global sense of what their goals are, what their focus is in the immediate and what their focus is long-term to be a thought leader or spokesperson. And one of the first things we do in our first session um, after the initial vision process and really figuring out who, who do I want to be? Why do I want to do this? Why do I even want to do that? Is it video? Is it media? Maybe I don't. Um, then we put them on camera. And we put them on camera just as an analysis to see where they're at. It could be for the speech, just to see where your speech is at. It could be, are you, if you're making Facebook Live videos, are you comfortable on camera? What does it feel like? Not a critique, just an awareness. So we start with an awareness. Everything starts with where are you now and where do you want to be? And then we fill the gap with the training. Um, and I already touched upon a little bit. So that's where we start with the awareness piece clarity. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? Second piece is internal barriers. So if someone has an emergency interview, like they need to be on TV like next week, or they're going to do a panel tomorrow, we can start with level five, which is performance, which is all the typical things that you would get from a speech trainer or a media trainer, how to stand, how to sit, what to wear, practice the interview, practice the sound bites, practice on camera, get feedback. That is what traditional media training would be. Traditional speech coaching, we focus on just the performance. But if someone's working with me at a high level and they want to embody everything, that's when we go through um, the second step, which is breaking through the internal barriers is what we talked about a little bit earlier is that um, what's stopping you, right? Where you may think you have it all together, but there are areas that, and we take a deeper dive into the unconscious and subconscious of really like what, what is stopping me, right? And that's just also having some space to even think about it. Some of these thought leaders, they're so busy doing, 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 you don't actually think about what is um, maybe subconsciously holding you back or maybe what's holding you back from your culture, right? I have a interesting story about, you were talking about Asian women. Uh, your wife, if we had a conversation, we would just get each other. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we would just like, oh yeah, yeah, that thing. Okay, yeah. And some people aren't aware of it. But I had another client. He was um, an executive, a high-level executive. He ran this whole division and it was time to give the, the report and release all his data and all these things. And he's like, oh no, no, I have my people do it. I don't, I don't go up there. And so we were working through it. Like, why don't you actually come to the forefront? It's all your research, right? Are these all your stats? Is everything? He's like, yeah, but my team can just do it. I go, but you're the senior VP. Shouldn't you advocate? He's like, oh, okay. And then we, we went through the internal barrier stuff and he realized, he's like, at the very end of the session, he said to me, he's all, Angela, I grew up Irish Catholic and my mom always told me 
not to show up, not to be conceited or to talk too much about myself. And he's like, and, and he was, and he's like, I'm, and I'm short too. So I think I've always been hiding. And I go, maybe, you know, I'm not to judge, you know, I'm not there to, and, and that's what I'm saying is that all of us have those internal barriers. And then the third part is we talk about the message. What do you want to say? What's your audience? How do you want to show up? Like really getting clear on the messaging. And also we go through a persona exercise of like, who do you want to step into? Like really visualizing and feeling who you want to be. So that's how I make people feel embodied in their you amplified self. And, um, but yeah, I can do the traditional media training where we just get you ready for the interview, get you ready for the camera, get you ready for the speech. But I feel like to be a true thought leader, to really embody the ones that you see at a conference, they are who they are off stage, on stage, as well as in person, you know, just talking. That's the leaders that I want to work with because to really step up into your leadership, it's not just about getting ready for that speech. It's about are you embodying who you are and what you want to be and what you want to put out into the world. So I guess that's a nutshell of how I work, but I go deeper than just yeah. uh, how to sit and stand, even though we can do just that. If some people, you know, I do workshops where people just have two hours with me or a group of executives and they just want to know the basics and that's fine too. But the deeper level clients, my VIP clients, we go deeper. I can imagine working with high level people. A lot of them are probably very impatient. They probably move very quickly and there's probably a lot of them that want to just be told like exactly what to do. Like just give me the, just the facts, ma'am, right? Versus you know, what you're talking about, about meeting people where they are is, is such an important point because if you don't, um, if you don't get awareness about that as, as an individual, then you don't know how to work with it. Like, so for instance, um, I, I'm fairly comfortable on video and I'm, I love being on stage. I'm an only child. So I know that like where some of my stuff comes from, but I also always have in the back of my head, this really weird thing. So my, my grandfather on my mom's side worked in public relations. Mm. And my mom always used to say to me growing up, she beat this into my head. She used to say, you never want to be the person that's famous. You want to be the person behind the person that's famous. Mm. She said it to me, I took it as gospel. And then at some point in my life, I was like, this shit is not serving me. All this is doing is making me scared of actually having people pay attention to what I have to say. And I feel like I have things to say that are super important. So I knew that I had to confront that. And thankfully, my therapist and I have really good times talking about that stuff. But um, <laughs> Is that how you discovered it though through therapy though? It's like, when did that, when did, when was the moment that that was like, oh, that actually does affect me? I think that it's the sort of thing where like, I just kept noticing it pop up. So like, I would be like, I'm going to go and do this thing. And then it would pop up and I would hear my mom's voice. Like, oh, you don't want to be the famous person. You want to be the person behind the famous person. And really it wasn't until I confronted that and really started working with that, that I got to be like, okay with like what I'm doing and like realize that that's not necessarily true. That's just a thing that's in my head that's floating around. I didn't ask for it. I didn't go seek it out. It's just there and it'll always come up and I have to just acknowledge like that's a voice. It says a thing. It doesn't mean I have to listen to it. Just like anything like imposter syndrome, fraud syndrome, any of that stuff. Yes. It's just but a- But isn't that powerful? That, yeah. I love that you shared that. See, and it has nothing to do with being an Asian woman or a woman. We all have that. Yep. Yep. At different degrees. And I'm not making light of any, you know, you were talking about uh, people of color and privilege and all that. There are different levels to the barriers that we face, but it doesn't mean you don't have barriers too. Oh, absolutely. And I think yeah. that's actually one of the like most gigantic misunderstandings about the conversation about diversity, inclusion, representation, any of that stuff is that I feel like there's a, a, a just giant contingent of people who are like, well, my life has been hard. It's like, dude, nobody's saying that your life wasn't hard or that your life is easier. You don't struggle with stuff. It's saying, hey, can you just stop for a second, take yourself out of your shoes and acknowledge somebody else's experience and let them have that in the same way that they're not invalidating your experience. 
Like I totally agree with that. And then coming as a person of color, and then there, I think there's just distinctions that I learn. I continue to learn too. There's distinctions between systems, yes. right? Syst- systemic barriers, internal barriers, family barriers, financial barriers. I mean, we all have different ones, but yeah. yes. And it's not that one's better or worse than the other one, but acknowledging that. But I think it is hard from people who have um, maybe deeper hardships to understand sometimes, you yeah. know, but I, I can, and as an Asian person, I'm kind of the bridge because I do not know what it's like to be another person of color. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do know what it is to be a person of color. And I can also see the other side, but I think we need more bridges, um, in our world right now to bridge yeah. the gap. And, right. And, and that's what I hope to do is bridge the gap between like spiritual and corporate and like, you know, diversity, like go, you know, power representation and like, well, let's see how other people are feeling to actually make it work <laughs> right within the organization. Yeah, hundred percent. I actually wanted to, it, one of the notes I had that I reading your web copy and knowing the things that you talk about, I wanted to actually touch a little bit on intersectionality if we could, because I think, um, you know, being an Asian woman, you kind of have that, that combination of those two that you've got the, the being a woman thing in the society and then also being an Asian woman in the society. So the combination of those two things is makes it a little bit different than let's say a white woman, but it also makes it very different than saying a black woman or somebody who's transgender or somebody who's disabled. So there's all of these different factors. I'm curious in your work, given the type of work that you do and working and empowering people, you probably come upon this in a way that's different than maybe how some others do. So I'm curious what you think in terms of how we as a society and a culture of work can best improve conditions for all people in the workforce and whether or not you think that you, in, in beginning to understand intersectional theory, which I, I'm at the tip of it, um, I'm curious about how, how as a culture we go about approaching it. Is it the sort of thing that you think is going to happen kind of sequentially? We're like, okay, well, first we'll improve conditions for women and then for uh, Asians, and then we will move to like, it, does it happen sequentially? And if so, who determines that sequence? But if not, <laughs> are, we, are we looking at it as like, we just have to approach this holistically and start to say, hey, let's just let's tear down all of these barriers and be inclusive across the board. What's the practical approach that that I that you think would make the biggest impact the most quickly? Oh, you yes, know what? It's, it's so I know it's so hard because it's an evolution, right? We are in the middle of the evolution and it's messy. Yeah. It's chaotic. And um and depending on who's leading the charge. So that's why I believe in the bridges in the world. So right now what's happening is everything that we've known is kind of, um, it's like throwing up on itself. (laughs) It's like exploding and doing different ways. And depending on where you stand on what issues, it's just like, just, you know, so for women with the me too thing, right. I I, I was in Hollywood and I've seen it all. I, I, I have not gone through any serious trauma by the way, but I have microaggressions my whole life and I've just learned to navigate them. So you have that whole thing. And then, you know, a lot of stuff is changing, you know, in the Asian with the representation with like fresh off the boat and you know, crazy rich Asians, like we're starting. And you talked about, I want to share something that you talked about. Is there an order? It's so interesting. There isn't an order, but there is an order. Um, there's a, <laughs> I'll go somewhere that I, it's interesting. So when I just think about the awards, let's just start with entertainment. So there's like the Oscars and there's awards and then there's like the BET awards or there's the Latin Grammys, right? So it's usually this hierarchy. Again, there's no Asian Grammys because there's not a lot of Asian people in the industry. So there is kind of a hierarchy of when with, uh, with entertainment there was, right? Cause you have, um, 
the black community and then you have the Latin community. And now the Asians are kind of getting their little, their little bit time in the spotlight, like just in the last few years. So that is not the right order. But then even within Asians, then you say, well, what about the Southeast Asians? What about the other? You can't really type. There's so many different varieties, but I just wanted to touch upon that. It's really funny because when we were in the Asian communities, it's like, well, there's no Asian Grammys. There's no Asian. And not that I want my own. We just want to be represented equally. But it is, there is kind of what people focus on. Now we're moving towards women. And now we're moving towards people of color, women color. Now we're moving to the whole, uh, and then it was LGBT. Now it's through like gender diversity, right? Now there's a whole new conversation that I'm not even familiar with that I'm getting well-versed in. So it's all an evolution. So you, the, lo- the long answer to your question is, I'm still learning too. So I know about being a woman. I know about being an Asian woman. I'm being very open. I have some black friends and we have conversations. They're like, I'm sick of being um, the responsibility. That's, it's, it's, not a, it's a burden to explain everything to you, right? Yep. And I, one of the principles of the power of the only is that it should be a privilege, not a burden, even though sometimes it's hard. If you are in a position of power at the table, um, it's up to us to speak up and lead the way. You may not always want to, but if you have the power, you should. But the, the answer to your question is, how does it work? It really depends on, you have the society things moving through that's shifting right now. Then you have, what organization are you in? Are you actually going to be able to create change in that organization, depending on the system and the culture of that organization? You can have all the principles of the power of the only, be totally you amplified, have gone through all my training, feel totally empowered. But if your system is broken or the culture is broken, it doesn't always work, right? So it's kind of like when you talk about how do we actually have diversity and full range of thought, I think individually we need to be you amplified and empower ourselves with all the things that know who you are, what you stand for, speak up for yourself and show up the way you need to show up. That's our personal responsibility to own our power of the only. On a organizational level, we have to look, if you're a leader in an organization, we're talking about diversity inclusion, is my organization inclusive? is to create an environment where if I give this person some training, like if they all, if my whole team becomes you amplified and they know who they are and they stand up for themselves and they put me, we always put the burden on the woman or the other group to step up. Will it work? Right. If you're, and then that's the organizational level is the organization and culture open to shifting. And then into, and as a society, I don't know that there is an order. We just, you have to know who you're talking to and where you are. And that always goes back to audience. Audience is the number one step of my You Amplified Seven Steps to Confidence, Clarity, Connection. And as a speaker, you know that too. Always talk to your audience. It's the same thing when you're talking about diversity and inclusion. What's the audience? What's the organization that you're in? Will this work? So no, it shouldn't just be on the individual. I come from the individual part because I believe we should all own our voice and our power and show up the way we want to show up. So that we have something to bring to the table. But yeah, are there going to be situations where I have clients that they are fully um, empowered? And as you can see, you know, with uh, women in the workforce, they talked about leaning in, leaning in, leaning in is not working, right? The numbers aren't changing that much. Why isn't it working? If the women are empowered, they're actually speaking up for themselves. They're doing the job. Why is it not working? Then we got to look at the system and the culture of the organization and of the society. And that's going to take time. But I think as each of us learn more and more and more and grow, but right now it's messy because it's been a certain way. And for someone just to like come out of it, like, no, now it has to be this way is really jarring. And if the organization is not caught up or our culture has not caught up, it just seems like a lot of people yelling from both sides. So the people that are going to be bridges that can see both 
uh, sides and bring those two pieces together until society is ready to catch up. That is what I'm hoping the power of the only will do is I want to rally the onlys, do what you need to do in the meantime, while society and culture is shifting. Cause I don't know how long this will take it. it we're, we're evolving. And I continually every day grow because like I said, I come from a generation where this whole gender fluid thing is new to me too. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to go into, but that's diversity on another level. And mm -hmm. even though I'm an Asian woman, uh, things that are new to me are new to me too. I have to go, okay, let me wrap my head around that. Like, you know, with the younger generation, it's like, um, and I have to be open to that, right? Just like if someone wants to be, if I want to have a conversation with someone like, well, here's what it's like to be an Asian woman in this situation. I need to be open to the conversation. Someone needs to come to me and say, you know, these are my pronouns and this is how I want to be. That's a new concept to me. That's not something that I grew up with and that's not something that I'm open to, but I'm willing to listen. Such an interesting point because I've been calling myself uh, the bridge generation for like 10 years at this point because I feel mm. like I'm the, I'm the person who sits between uh, kind of baby boomers and millennials. And yes. when they're just talking past each other, I'm like, here's what they're saying. Here's what you're each saying. Yes. Because I yes. grew up, you know, having, you know, I grew up with a dial up modem, right? So like I was early. Yeah, me too. That's the thing. We did, we did like, I've seen it all <laughs> from yeah. the, from the archaic to like, wow, you know, and yeah. your social media and you're savvy and you know all the tools now, but it's an evolution. It is. But like the, being a bridge is like such, it's a lot of weight and responsibility to carry because not only do you have to, um, you have the burden of me of having to translate between different groups and also to keep the level head. And, and it's especially tough if you see something that is, um, you know, justifiably causes outrage, you know, something that's just really yes. just, and you see something that's, it's really tough to just be like, okay, let me keep a calm head and be able to explain this in a way that's not terrible. Yes. Uh, but that's a gift. That is a gift. Right. But it's, it is a, it's hard. It's, it's hard. hard. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, I also feel a little bit lucky that I've had the opportunity to be in that position because it, it's taught me a lot of really, really important conversation skills. Um, but all that to, to kind of come back to the, what I, uh, you mentioned lean in and how it hasn't really changed, uh, the, the numbers necessarily. And you strike me as someone who's probably very hopeful. Like you, you seem like someone who's going to look for the bright side of whatever it is that, you know, yeah. if we're talking about empowering people, you see the possibility in empowering people. You're not empowering people with the assumption that like, it's all going to go to shit. Right. So, no. it, you know, if we look at some of the maybe things that, that, you know, maybe the me too movement accomplished some things, maybe it, it didn't accomplish enough, or maybe some of the efforts at uh, inclusion are, are trying and maybe they haven't gone far enough. I'm curious what you think is kind of like the state of the union, where we are on, kind of moving toward the ideal of, of acceptance of all people and, and everybody having a voice and a seat at the table. Have we made a lot of progress, a little bit of progress? Are you feeling like, you know, the work that you're doing is at the right place at the right time, or you feel like we're at base camp right now, or do you think that we're far enough along? We just got to get it over the, over the hill. I think we're in the middle of all of it. I think that's why I was called to do the power of the only, I've been thinking about this for a year and it's just like every night it was like weighing on me. And the whole principle of the power of the only is that here's what I've seen. So lean in is not working, but doesn't mean that the, the women and the organizations behind it aren't doing their job. It's just when you're looking at stats, right? You're looking at stats over uh, when they do these reports, it's over a, a different companies and they're only looking at numbers, how many women in positions of power. Um, I didn't want to apply the only to that. I uh, when the report came out, it's 2018, and it was saying that lean-in is not working. Uh, the 
numbers are still not, you know, still not a lot of numbers in positions of women in positions of power. And that the only, this is where the power of the only came from. And that the only's were left out. Their voices weren't as heard as much. It was diluted. And it was very difficult to get ahead if you were an only. That was what the report said, that it was, they struggled more, which is true, I'm sure. And that the point of that study was that they needed to have uh, more than one to create change. So that the point of that study was like, you know, all the onlys have it really hard. Here's what we found. And, you know, in order to actually have diversity work there, you can't have the onlys. And then I thought about that as like, well, no, there's power in being the only, not denying that it's more difficult, not denying that your voice may get diluted, not denying that you should have more women at the table so that the only's voice gets heard. But my whole thought is like, what do we do in the meantime? And so this is when it came to me. And then I realized the power of the only isn't just about women. It's about any time, like as you've proven, when you feel different, when you're the only one at the table, how do you navigate that and how do you speak up for yourself? And you've learned that skill somehow, being the bridge. And it's a skill that I think only's learned. So I learned this skill, which used to be, um, so how do you turn it from an obstacle to a strength? My obstacle back in the day was being raised by an immigrant family. My parents spoke English, but I was the translator for them on all sorts of things, even like Santa Claus, right? Like I had to tell them, here's, here's how Santa Claus works. You're supposed to hide presents. If there's kids listening, I'm sorry, Santa Claus, <laughs> but you, and, you know, and, and then yeah, my poor, my poor parents, then they did what I told them to do. And then when they hit the thing and I, and they go, here, Santa Claus came. I go, those tags are in the closet. You're not Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> and then I called them a poor parents. So I was a translator from the very beginning. And, you know, when I was young, that might've been hard. It feels like a burden, right? It feels like a burden. Like, oh, I have to translate. I have to, you're, I was the bridge between cultures. I was the older sister. So I was the bridge for my younger brother. He's eight years younger than me. And I think all those skills add to who you are. If you talk to, I've been talking to other onlys and maybe you, I don't know where, you know, if you're the older sister or the older brother, or you had parents or you navigated uh, maybe moving a lot, or you were a military child, or you were um, growing up Asian, whatever you navigated, your obstacle becomes your strength if you navigate through it, right? And so that is the conversation that I think that, the power of the only needs. And so that's why I felt it was so important. And you're saying, has it changed? Um, Let's get back to your question about why this matters is because the organizations where we're at is that that's why I wanted to harness. We're right in the middle of it. So what companies have been doing before was like, oh yeah, yeah, let's have a, I used to speak at affinity groups, like Asian affinity groups. Okay. There's an Asian affinity group. There's a woman's affinity group. Great. Let's have these, let's put them all in a room and let's have them talk. That is important to have groups that you relate with, to, to, to have commonality with. But if you actually want to create change within the organization, that's why I think women's events, I love women's events, but you need to have also women's events that men go to too, right? Yeah. You need to have diversity events where the whole company goes to. Otherwise, you're just talking to each other. So that's the evolution that I see that companies are investing in more the ones that are leading the way, the ones that are more uh, aware is that, you know, I got a call, I, I'm doing a keynote coming up or hopefully, I don't know if the contract signed yet, <laughs> but uh, it was talking about, they were talking about belonging and how do we create belonging in our organization and bringing me in to talk about uh, my experience of being an Asian woman, but the culture has to be on board. It's not just, let's stick all the people that should be belonging into a room and have a 
you know, a little mini festival and look good on the DNI chart. Now go belong together. We'll, we'll yeah, see. Yeah, now go. Oh, no. Yeah. It's like, and, and it's not to say they weren't trying, but I'm just saying the evolution of I've seen in my speaking career, the early things that I've done before this last five year gap was more how wonderful they're having these groups. So I would speak and a couple executives would show up and they were totally welcoming and they're like, great. Okay. Check the box. Everybody happy. Okay. Now I'm going to go back. It has to be an integrated plan through the organization because um, diversity for women, people of color and leadership, you know, there's a gap right now of, you know, they're just starting to be, okay, let's be diverse now. And they look down and there's a gap. There's nobody to bring up because they just decided to, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you're asking me is where are we at? And I feel like people are doing better. They're more aware depending on the organization, depending on the industry, things are changing and they're investing and they're trying to create new conversations, but no, we're not there yet. But if people continue to have these conversations and have them together with um, upper level, middle level and lower level on board, that's how you create real change. But I start with the power of the only, because that is a big daunting task that I don't know how long that will take, but as long as we're evolving and people are open to the conversation, I, I definitely see hope. And I think it's much better than it's ever been, but I do think it does fall on in the individual as well. You know, a lot of people say, like, well, I can't do anything because the organization just stinks. Well, that might be true, but maybe you're going to move to another organization and you still need to own who you are and have the power of the only, and maybe that organization is not for you. You need to shift, but that doesn't mean you stop growing and learning and being, you know, and seeing it as a privilege, not a burden, which I think is hard. You know, when we're talking about that, that is, that's why I put that one of the four principles of that it should be a privilege, not a burden, because I had so many conversations, many with my black successful friends. And they were like, I'm so sick and tired of standing up for everything. And it's not always your job and you don't need to do it on your free time. And you need to make sure that the people that are the change makers and the thought leaders and the power of the onlys, there's a big component is that you need to guard your energy. So for you, you know, you're saying how it's exhausting to fight the fight. You don't always have to fight. Like when you're off, you should be off, right? And you need to honor the change makers, the power of the onlys out there. We need to guard our energy and what we choose to stand up for. I, I believe in a lot of things. I'm not always going to, you don't always have to speak up about everything, but if you're in a position of power at a moment that matters and you have a seat at the table, I see it as a privilege, not a burden. So it's so funny that you use those those terms, uh, privilege and burden, because in the book I'm writing, The Lovable Leader, uh, I say that leadership, the three lenses of leadership are that is that at all times, leadership is a responsibility, a burden, and a privilege. It is actually yes. all three of those things at all times because, yes. and, and kind of to your point, you actually, I think you might have just said like you kind of like should speak up in those times. I don't know if you use the word responsibility, but I believe that's what it is, is that if you have the power to make a difference, it's your responsibility to make that difference and it's going to be a burden. But if you have the privilege to be in a position where you can make that change, it's again, it's your, it's like, it's all cyclical. They're all related. So I'm hundred percent in, in line with what you're saying. And, and actually one of the reasons why I started the Superhero Institute was because I, I similarly believe we're at a point in time where we are. I don't want to say lucky enough. Lucky is not the right way of saying it, but I feel like we are, uh, we should be happy that we're in a culture where these conversations are coming up, where they're allowed to happen, yes. where they're becoming more common, and where the pressure of the conversation on the, I guess, the previous conversation that was happening is starting to get things to change. And some people may be uncomfortable by that, but I, I think that it's a nice thing that um, for all the people whose voices weren't heard, we're now in, in we're moving into a world in which their voices now get to be heard. 
Um, and I just, I really personally, I'm glad that the culture is, is moving in that direction. Yes. And it, it's amazing. And it actually is. It's like, I don't, people get so, there's so much chaos in the world right now. And I, I really hope that people, when, like you said, we really need to guard our energy. You can't save everything all the time, every time. You don't have to speak up every time, all the time, every time, but you need to be ready when you want to, right? You need to do what you need to do for yourself and stand up where it matters. And, um, but the conversations are shifting. So yeah, people are like, ah, nothing's working. I, yeah, I am optimistic. I'm optimistic that I can even have this conversation. And I, you know, if you keep reading the negativity, you're not going to have the power of the only. Yeah. Yeah. You're just going to be feel defeated. Yeah. Well, you've been uh, just an absolutely fabulous guest with this went in I think most of the directions I, I would hope it would went, but it also we got to pick up on some really cool stuff on journalism, the state of news, and uh, what it means to to be um, and only in all sorts of different areas of life. So I just really appreciate the energy that you bring to the world, but also, you know, how you showed up in this conversation and, um, you know, the things that you're working on. So I want to take this opportunity in the show to just to turn it over to you to let you talk about, you know, what you're working on, where people can go and be social with you, where they can learn more about what you're all about. And, you know, really just, this is your shameless self-promotion time. So if there's anything <laughs> to talk about, like, please take this time to do it. And then um, I have uh, two more short questions for you after that. Um, they're, I won't call them rapid fire, but they're just two short questions I want to ask you because I'm really curious about your answers to them. Oh, thank you. And I'm such an honor to speak with you. I mean, I went, these are things that I'm passionate about that keep me up at night. And I, I, I talked to my husband about, so I appreciate you giving me that window. And I just love chatting with you, right? And that you brought in uh, your experiences and we have a lot that we relate to. And, you know, I'd love to talk to your wife more too, about if there's anything that she needs to talk to me about. But uh, I guess self-promotion, I've you know, I feel like you've promoted me a lot, but yeah, I basically am super excited about the power of the only launching on international women's day. Depending on when this airs, you may have already heard it. It's international women's day. Um, trailer is out now. If you want to get a sense of it and it's a new conversation that I'm starting. It's about disruption, innovation, harnessing the power of the only that you are not alone. If you are a change maker, you're a thought leader, you're ready to do something big. You want to own your voice and your power. You want to be, you know, accelerate your success. I'm here for you. Um, my deeper level work. If you'd like to contact me, I'm on social media on all the platforms at Angela Chi TV on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. I'm going to be adding more videos. My podcast will also be a video podcast. So it'll be there as well. My website is Angela Chi.com where you can find out more ways to book me as a keynote speaker. I speak on women's empowerment, leadership, as well as diversity. And I'm working on my new keynote talk, which is a mix of my breaking through barriers and cultural stereotypes, breaking through barriers, redefining leadership, um, and the new power of the only talk, which is coming up. And also, um, if you'd like to access more free content, you can always find me on my website. I have seven steps to confidence, clarity, and connection. It's a video series to kind of, uh, keep in touch with me and stay in the loop of what I'm doing. And also a free You Amplified with Angela Chi Facebook group, if you'd like to check that out. And that's at youamplifiedlive.com. Amazing. Thank you for uh, providing all of that for people to go and check out. I strongly advise everyone to do it. I really hope that I get the chance to see you speak at some point and that we can, uh, you know, I've been asked a question, who have you shared the stage with? Based on our conversation, I would be honored to one day be able to say that uh, I shared the stage with you because we have so much uh, overlapping interests, and I think very, very similar missions in terms of empowering people. So uh, I hope one day that that, that gets to happen. I uh, would love that. Yeah. See all, we're in touch with such amazing professional speakers, totally. and I really would like to see more of them as well. Yeah, 100%. So the, the two questions I'm going to ask you, um, 
I don't do a lot of the like the rapid fire questions at the end, but I just had two quick questions I want to ask you at the end. So the, the first was that um, I want to give you, uh, you know, like one wish. I want to give you the, 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 the infinity gauntlet and you can snap and you can change anything in the world right now that would make the world a better place in, in the way that you see it. If you snapped and you could stay alive or not either way, something that's important to you enough that you would snap the infinity gauntlet. I don't know if you understand the reference. I'm a huge comic book nerd, <laughs> um, but something that is really important to you. What's, what's one thing right now that you would want to see shift in this world that you think would make it things infinitely better. I'm curious about that. Ooh. Um, I wish that everyone had hope that, um, you know, one of the things I believe in is that is if you feel like you truly um, have everything you need to succeed that's already inside you. And I think the problems that we stem from right now is people don't feel like they have enough and they act out of fear. I feel like if I gave everyone hope that the ability, like, you know, that the feeling that I have inside that even when I didn't grow up with a lot of money, I didn't grow up with having tons of role models of knowing where to go, that I always felt safe. Right. I always felt that I I would be okay, even if I wasn't, I didn't have everything I wanted, but I felt safe to um, stand up for myself and do whatever I needed to do, even if I had hardship. I wish, if I think if everyone had more hope and peace in their lives, that they would be able to figure things out. And then that would trickle down to all the other things I believe in is that they would have less fear and they'd be able to own their power and their voice and stand up for what they believe in. They'd have less fear of the financial issues that they face so they wouldn't act out of scarcity instead of abundance and that they would see other people's sides because if they're not acting out of fear and they had hope for themselves, they would be more willing to listen and be open um, to another person's point of view. And I think that would solve a lot of problems. Amazing answer. Love it. All right. Final final quick question. Thank you for bringing that out for me. I was like, oh my God, what would I want? I mean, I think that one thing would solve a lot of problems. Yeah. And I agree with you. Um, it, it like definitely connects in with empathy and like, you know, understanding and all these sort of things that we are sorely lacking in the world. Um, my final question for you is, uh, is purely selfish. Um, I'm about to have a daughter. Um, she's (laughs) going to be, um, you know, mixed, uh, half white, half Asian. And, uh, this is my first child about to be a father. And I'm curious if you have one good piece of advice for me to be the best possible father to this daughter. And ideally it would be something that I would need to know as a white guy raising an Asian daughter, if there's anything in that side of things that can help me to be able to better understand her and help her throughout her life and, and, and empower her to be the best that she can be. Wow. Let's see. I think that you're already a very good role model. And I think um, being a presence in her life and sharing your uh, ideals and values with her is really important. Um, you know, I'll go two sides. On uh, an empowerment level, I think you're, you're doing a great job already. <laughs> like, believe me, you know, a lot of dads and moms going to like, I don't know what I'm doing. It's okay. You'll figure it out. <laughs> but from an empowerment level, I don't think there's anything else that you need to do differently. Um, my, my kids are mixed. My husband is um, Jewish, but we're not religious. Mm-hmm. And um, they're 10 and 11 now. Um, so they're half Chinese and half white and they are very well-rounded. And so I would say as a future, it's like honoring the cultures and how they mix, honoring your wife and what she brings to the table. And it sounds like you already do and what you bring to the table and being open to that. You are a good blend of both of them. She will bring ideals and you will bring your own ideals, but you don't have to do anything differently as raising an Asian daughter, but having her feel like the opportunities, like just that 
it isn't different, right? That you're able to do what that she brings something to the table. That is for the, the higher level and just be there for her, for those father daughter moments that are really priceless. There's nothing special you need to do except really show up and okay. listen and be there for her. now on the baby level. Do you want advice on the early days? Like when you come home from the hospital, you're going to scare the crap out of me right now. <laughs> no, no, no. The early days. I just think it's an interesting transition for moms and, um, and fathers. It's such a magical moment. And, you know, things don't always go out as planned. The partnership has to be really strong, but there is a, there is a period where, where I went dark for a little bit and be honoring to your wife of um, healing, right? Women go through this transition after they have babies and, you know, the blogs out there and all the videos and people talk about it, it's much more open than it was when our parents were growing up. Nobody talked about it. You just spit babies out and then you moved on. But there's much more resources out there. But, you know, I went through a really hard time. Like I was this type A, and I know you're asking about your daughter, but I want to give you some advice for your wife. (laughs) I mean, honestly, being a great husband or being a great father, both very- Yes, they're all tied together. I'll I'll take either. And and I think uh, being a, a good husband to my wife will obviously be very good for my daughter. Yes. And, you know, my husband is so supportive and so wonderful and so open-minded. But in the early days, there's still, you know, there's a little bit of emotional labor. There's still those male-female roles. It's like as soon as you, you know, I left my job as a TV news anchor and I started breastfeeding and I was bringing the baby home and I was sitting in the chair every night with the baby waking up every hour and a half in the dark, sitting there with my lamp going, oh my God, what happened to my life? And that's not a negative thing. It's not that I didn't want a baby. It's not that I didn't love my husband. I loved all of it, but you just had a baby. You're alone. You're new. Your body hurts. You're only sleeping every hour and a half. It's, it's, it's an emotional time. I don't know if I went through postpartum depression. I wasn't treated for it. I don't feel like I had a super chemical imbalance, but I definitely was hormonal. I definitely had my moments, but it was beautiful too, like learning and laughing and watching, you know, having my, my husband help me out with certain things. And if you're a single mom, it's totally different, but you're going through this journey alone. But for you as a father is just be part of it and understand where, um, you're like, what, because things shift, schedule shifts, priority shifts. It's all about the baby for a little while, but you will get your life back in the way that you want to put it back together. Does that make sense? And I was okay for a, you know, especially for the first three months where it literally is all about the baby. And if not longer, you know, and I don't think it always has to be about the baby, but in the first three months, honor your wife that she's healing, help out where you can honor that there's not enough sleep and that you guys might be cranky and you're navigating it together. And uh, you're like, no, you do it. No, you do it. <laughs> I remember one time we woke up in the middle of the night, my husband was sleeping and um, my, my back went out. I was like, my back has never gone out. I was breastfeeding and I put the baby back and I was like, uh, honey, I don't think I can move. It's because I sacrificed too much for the baby. I didn't sit up right. I didn't position myself right. I just was like, no, it's about the baby first. So yes, put the baby first, but also honor your wife, honor yourself, make sure that you have time for yourself and that she has some time for herself. But in the, in the early few months, it's really hard. But know that things will shift, but doesn't mean that your wife is gone or everything's going to be different or what's happening. It's such a beautiful, beautiful time. And then there'll be moments where this is so magical, but then there's also the work that needs to be done because... Uh, depending on how the baby sleeps. So just honor that, that to be helpful, to, to be there to understand and help out when you can. And I'm sure she'll love you for that. Awesome. Well, thank you for the advice. Uh, and listeners, thank you for indulging me because uh, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> so I'm learning on the job. So in May, right? In May? Uh, yeah. So my birthday okay. is May 2nd and the due date's May 1st. And I'm really hoping she arrives on my birthday because I hate my birthday. And I would love to just celebrate her every single year for it instead. 
Um, yeah. Also, easy math then, uh, because uh, I'm turning 40 on May 2nd. Yay, uh, congratulations. Just, thank you. So I would just be able to always subtract 40 and be like, that's how old she is. And I love, you know, I, I think I'm so excited for you guys. Yes, there's going to be some, you know, sleepless nights, difficult times, but it's so beautiful. But just honor the journey that you're on and where you're at and uh, take care of each other. Will do. Will do. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the show and sharing, um, you know, all of your experience and uh, all of your ideas and all of your thoughts. I would strongly advise that people uh, go and follow you. Obviously, they should subscribe to your podcast and, and just really just keep up with what you're doing because it's awesome. Um, so thank I you. Thank you for coming on. And um, the show is definitely awesome. I would, if I have to describe it in one word, I guess everyone knows what I would say. I guess I would say it's shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing shareable.fm where this podcast is hosted do you have a podcast or know someone that has a podcast that you think is particularly i don't know shareable well send them to shareable.fm to apply to be on the network shows that are selected not only get added to the site and in some cases to the shareable fm radio podcast but we also bring together the best tips tricks and tactics for promoting your show and growing listenership and for our headliner and feature shows, we provide fully outsourced social advertising support. So leave the uh, promotion to us, okay? So give it a look, and if you want to find some new and interesting shows, or if you just want additional exposure for your own show, or know someone who would benefit, please let them know about it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shareable. I sincerely appreciate it, and this show would mean absolutely nothing without you, the listener. So thank you, and I hope to see you back for the next one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>